over the next couple days, you know, my, my platoon was in contact, you know, on and off throughout the day, all day, um, for the next four or five days. Um, you know, firefights ranging from just some sporadic harassing fire to two, three, four hour firefights, depending on, um, you know, how much the enemy really wanted to, really wanted to make a big push. You know, our battalion would send guys out to patrol, but it was, you know, more than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. Um, you were definitely getting in a near ambush. You were definitely getting in some kind of contact. Hey, welcome to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single one-on-one interview with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. My guest today is MWI's own Major Jake Moraldi. He's going to talk through the Battle of Barge Matal. In July 2009, he was a platoon leader in eastern Afghanistan and was part of a small U.S. force sent to retake a village after it had been taken over by the Taliban. The mission was supposed to take 96 hours. His battalion would end up fighting there for two months. Before we get to the conversation, a couple really quick notes. First, this was actually the very first episode of The Spear we ever released. But, as you can imagine, we've gotten a lot of new listeners since we launched the podcast. So we're sharing it again for most of you who haven't heard it. And stay tuned, we've got several really incredible stories lined up for upcoming episodes. So, if you're not already subscribed, be sure to find us wherever you get your podcasts and do so so you don't miss them. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Major Jake Moraldi. Jake, thanks for being here. I think our regular listeners will recognize you from our previous podcast where, where you've hosted most of them, but this is kind of the first time that you've sat uh, on that side as the guest. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk a little bit today about the Battle of Barj Matal. Can you... First, just set, kind of set the stage, give us some big picture context, what was going on, where are we talking about? Sure, so it was, uh, my first deployment to Afghanistan was as a platoon leader with uh, 10th Mountain Division uh, into Kunar province. Um, and Barj Matal was out of sector for us, but it was still within our brigade's AO. Um, so we were in Northeast Afghanistan, high mountain terrain along the Pakistan border um, and midsummer, beginning of July, end of June, 2009, um, Barjotal, which was a village in, in far northern Nuristan, got overrun, um, by Taliban forces. And that was, you know, that was the basic situation of, of where we were. We had been in country for about five months at that point, sort of further south, closer to Asadabad. Um, but because of the amount of combat power in Nuristan at that point, we ended up, uh, our battalion ended up flexing forces up to Barjmatal uh, to support and retake this, this village. So you said the, the village had been overrun by Taliban. Has, was there previously an American presence there or an Afghan military presence there? No, so the nearest uh, American position to Barjmatal 
was Cop Keating, which is about 15 to 20 miles south of uh, Bargemental Village. Periodically, uh, my understanding was, you know, once a year, twice a year, someone would fly up there and kind of talk with the locals um, from the American side, but that was pretty much the only interaction that Americans had in, in that village. Um, there were Afghans there. If I remember correctly, it is Afghan border police that were primarily there, um, as well as a few of the Afghan national police, but it wasn't a, a large contingent of Afghan national security forces that were, were in the village. So when you say it was overrun, it wasn't exactly a, a hard target, that, but they came over, they came in, they, they took over the town, and then uh, you and your unit were, were sent there, why? Yeah, so, so they came in, took over the town beginning in July, um, and this was 2009, this was before the elections, which were gonna run in August of 2009, um, and there was a big push from the government to, to not lose ground right before the election. Um, they, the Afghan government really wanted to make the election look legitimate and really wanted to make the election look like it was run well and that there were, weren't big security problems. Um, and Nuristan in particular, due to the terrain of Nuristan, the really high mountains, the, the just insular nation, uh, nature of the people there, made getting votes from those places difficult. Um, and Barjmatal, for whatever reason, was one of those places that the Afghan national government thought they could get people to come out and vote. Um, so when Taliban overran the village, it became a very high priority, high visibility uh, loss for the Karzai government. So the village was sort of a symbolic uh, target, for lack of a better term, um, a strategic target uh, if I recall, summer 2009, General McChrystal had just come in and, and taken over command of ISAF. And so presumably the orders process sort of started from up there and filtered down to you. And what unit were you in? Uh, so I was in Alpha Company. I was the platoon leader for 3rd Platoon of Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 32nd Infantry Regiment. Um, we were in 3rd Brigade, 10th Mountain Division, but mm -hmm. were attached to 4th Brigade, 4th Infantry Division. Okay. Um, and yeah, so we fell under RC East, and that is my understanding that it was a, a Karzai level, hey, we need to go retake this place decision that kind of filtered all the way down to, down to us. So what were your orders? Uh, so we were basically told we were gonna go on a 96 hour mission um, and reestablish government control in Barjmatal. We were gonna, my platoon was going to uh, retake the east side of the village and our battalion scout platoon, who basically was functioning as a rifle platoon at this point, uh, was gonna take the west side of the village. We were gonna clear it and then reinstall Afghan security forces. And then like the, the district governor would fly in and kind of reestablish governmental control. Um, and we would just secure them while they got set up back in the village. Uh, that was the initial order we got. Uh, we ended up being there quite a bit longer than that. Um, but that was the initial mission that we were given. So can you kind of talk us through the, the planning phase and, and um, from, you know, from the time you got that order until you get there, um, what were you planning? What was your infill plan? Yeah, so we, it was actually a pretty quick turn on, on planning. We had been, uh, our FOB, FOB Joyce had been attacked actually the day before we got the orders to come up 
that we were going to go to Barjmatal, and they had blown up one of the fuel blivets, so there was a huge fire on the FOB. Um, and when I got called into the talk to get the eventual orders to go to Barjmatal, I thought we were going to do a mission to take care of the threat to the FOB. Um, because we had taken a lot of fire from one particular direction, north and east of Fob Joyce, um, and I thought that's what we were doing. But when I got to the talk, they said, hey, you are going to go and help retake this village in Nuristan. Uh, I forget exactly what day it was, but I think we had a day at Fob Joyce, and then we flew to Fob Bostic uh, up north in um, 361 Cavs AO, which was the unit who was responsible for sort of that northern part of Kunar province and then Nuristan province to the north. Um, and we had a day of planning there and the mission got pushed another 24 hours so we got another day of planning and then we infilled uh, at about 02 on the 12th. Um, but in terms of planning, I mean, we had a vague understanding of where we were going and kind of what we were getting into. Um, ISR had shown, you know, guys with guns running around in the village. It had seemed like the village was, was more or less abandoned at certain points. Um, but other than that, we kind of didn't know what we were getting into. Um, our understanding was that the force that overran the village in the first place was not, not huge by any means, um, but it wasn't three guys. It was, uh, you know, on order of like a platoon sized element. Um, but beyond that, we really didn't have a good picture of what exactly we were getting into in terms of enemy situation. Um, and then in terms of terrain, you know, you can look at the maps of areas like that, and we were in rugged terrain in the part of Kunar we were, but not like this. Um, and, and even looking at the maps and the imagery and that kind of stuff didn't give us a full understanding of just how, just how crazy the terrain was outside of the river valley. I mean, it was straight shots up 15,000 foot mountains. Uh, the second you got out of the, you know, hand grenade range of the river. Um, so in terms of planning and infill, there weren't a lot of options really. You know, there were two or three places we knew we could land helicopters. Um, and those basically just by default became what our infill plan was. So you, you flew on Chinooks, um, and then the plan was just to dismount and, and walk in. Yep, so we, the original plan was, you know, my platoon was supposed to retake the uh, east side of the village. So my platoon, uh, some Afghans, uh, the battalion mortars, and then uh, my battalion commander landed. We're gonna land on the east side of the river we were going to move in from the north of the village, establish a foothold on that east side, and from that foothold we could secure the HLZ that the battalion scouts were going to land in um, to the north of the village, but not very far north. I would say 150 meters north of, uh, of the village on the western side of the river. Um, the river went right down the middle of the village, bisected it in two, so we were gonna get that foothold on the east side, overwatch the scouts infill on the west side, and then they were gonna clear the district center, which was the first kind of the northernmost building on the west side of the river. And then we were gonna bound successively through the village 
um, with the scouts supporting us as we move through the eastern half and us supporting them through the western half. So just to kind of uh, create an even clearer picture if possible, how, how big is the village? There's a river that bisects it? Yep, so there's a river that bisects it. The river was probably 30 meters across, maybe 25, 30 meters across. Um, there was one bridge in the middle uh, of the river, which was kind of right in the middle of the town. That was the only way that you'd get across the river. It was fast moving and, and deep. Um, the west side of the river was kind of where, it was where the district center was, uh, and a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the public structures, I'll, I'll call them. So there was the district center, there was a hotel right next to the, the bridge, um, there was a lumber mill just down the road from the bridge, uh, and then to the south end of the west side of the village was, were some scattered houses. Um, but the west side was a little bit less densely built up than the right side. I would say, you know, east to west, kind of from the river to the western edge of the village was probably 100 meters, 150 meters. Uh, the east side was a lot more built up. Uh, it was not necessarily bigger, but it was a lot denser. Um, so north to south, it was probably 150, 200 meters. Um, and then east to west from the river, it was probably also 150 meters. Uh, but it was very dense houses on top of each other, kind of Afghan village, where the roof of one house is kind of the porch of the house above it. Uh, and it was built up onto a hill that kind of came up from the bridge to an, an arc of high ground that ran from east to west and then curved down to the south uh, along the river. Okay. Um, yeah. So so what, what happens when, when you land? Uh, so when we land, uh, we were under the impression before we got up there, especially after getting pushed 24 hours, uh, that there was a real possibility we were going to get in a, a fight as soon as we got on the ground. Um, happily, that did not really happen for us. Um, as we were coming off the birds, the Apaches engaged a few people up on the mountainside, uh, but very little in the way of of real enemy contact in any meaningful way. Um, we landed about a kilometer and a half north of the actual village, because um, that was really the only place you could land on the, uh, the east side of the river. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and it was open farm fields dotted with, with little houses or, or sheds, um, and there were nobody in any of them. They were all abandoned. Um, which was a little bit ominous to us. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that, so that was the infill. It took us a while uh, at, the, at the HLZ to kind of consolidate everything. It was, you know, two in the morning and we had Afghans that didn't have night vision goggles and it was us and the mortars and it was just a lot of, a lot of moving pieces. We very quickly moved to establish a mortar firing point near uh, some cover of some of the houses. That was kind of first priority. My platoon moved to the south and established a little bit of a, a defense focused to the south because we thought that's kind of where the main threat was. We had some reporting that the enemy may have uh, a technical truck with a dishka on top of it somewhere north of where we were going to land. Uh, so we pushed, in, we pushed a javelin uh, kind of to the north along the, I wouldn't call it a road, but the trail that you could drive a truck down um, just in case. 
Uh, and then we basically held out until the Afghans were able to push up onto the mountainside a little bit. And then they were gonna kind of lead, they were gonna be our overwatch as we progressed along the riverbed from the field to the north to the northern edge of Marjimtal village. So this is, you're approaching dawn or it's dawn when you start moving? Uh, by the time we start moving, I believe, I'm trying to remember, we started moving, it was still dark, uh, but it was, it, we hadn't moved for very long before the sun started coming up. Um, I would say we managed to get within sight of the village probably an hour after sunrise. So it was probably about 06, 0545 that we managed to kind of move ourselves from the HLZ to within sight of the village. Uh, and then it was not very far until we had to establish a support by fire to get in. And at what point did you first get engaged? So the initial infill, we did not get engaged really at all. Um, other than the little bit of, of contact that the helicopters uh, had as we were getting off the birds, we really uh, didn't take contact at all. So as we progressed uh, south into the village, we got within eyesight, we kind of bounded down the riverbed um, and then established an overwatch and we pushed the Afghan uh, border police that were with us up to establish a foothold into the village. Uh, where we were coming from north to south, our overwatch could, could basically only see the northern sides of all the buildings because uh, they were up a hill and we kind of couldn't see anything behind them. Uh, so we could suppress the northern faces, the northern fronts of the building uh, in the village, but nothing else. So we pushed the Afghans up. They cleared the first couple buildings and basically confirmed, hey, there's nobody here. Um, we continue to sort of deliberately go through and clear uh, the whole eastern side of the village, but it became apparent very quickly that there was nobody there. So at this point, your mission is to go there, get the Taliban fighters out of there. You land, they're already out of there, and you must be feeling pretty good about the mission at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit, it was a little, a little bit of both. We were really, we were really happy, um, you know, that we weren't in a knockdown drag out to get into the village. Um, but we had, we had seen enough in the, you know, in the four or five months we'd been in Afghanistan to know that no people around is probably not a good thing. Um, you know, the scouts encountered roughly the same thing on their side of the river uh, after they landed and they kind of cleared and found basically nothing. Uh, nobody there. We found a few ammo caches and that sort of thing. So, like I said, I, I think we, we were very happy that we weren't slugging it out the whole way, but we were a little concerned that there were not, there was no resistance and no people. So concerned, presumably, um, sort of expecting a counterattack. Um, so what, what are the next steps? What do you do now? You know, you expect to be here for 96 hours. Are you setting up defensive positions? Yep. So on our side of the river and, and the scouts did on their side of the river too, we established some, some hasty fighting positions kind of as best we could. Um, my platoon especially was a little bit undermanned at this point. Um, and we had an element back with the battalion mortars securing the mortars. Um, we had 
a few guys across the river uh, helping the scouts out. So I had about a squad, so about 10 guys who we sort of pushed to the, the three cardinal directions, south fighting position, north fighting position, and east fighting position. Um, and we basically established the very, the very limited amount of security we could with, with 10 guys. Uh, and then the task became, okay, we gotta get everything else off the HLZ, the mortars, our guys, the battalion commander, all the OPs that we'd set up and kind of consolidate everything down in the village. Uh, and that became a significant event just because we didn't have a lot of manpower. Um, but that took up most of the morning into the afternoon was just that movement of everything down into the village. Um, but we, through the course of that, retained security elements in, again, looking to the south, to the north, and to the um, east. But our perimeter was really small. Um, we set up in a few buildings, but I want to say direct line to each of our positions, if, if you're thinking about them as a triangle, was maybe 25 meters between each position. Um, maybe 50 between the north and the south position, but it was we, we were very tight given how big the village was uh, and how dense the the buildings were, especially on our side. You know, so we had security, but it was it was very hasty, and it was not. It, it ended up not being sufficient, and we didn't get a chance to really improve it that much before the counterattack did actually come. So. And when did that come? Uh, so the counterattack happened. Uh, they, they planned it, or they timed it really well, and they hit us right in that, in that transition from, okay, we're definitely still in an offensive mindset, and we are in a hasty defense in the village, when we were transitioning to, okay, now we are defending in the village. Um, so before we had a chance to really improve our fighting positions at all, before we had a chance to expand our, our perimeter at all, uh, before we had a chance to really get guys oriented to where things were on the ground and establish target reference points and do all the direct fire stuff uh, that we should have been doing. Um, they hit us right in that window, kind of mid-afternoon, mid to late afternoon. Um, yeah, before, before we were totally prepared for them to, to counterattack. From where? Uh, so the initial firing came from the south, from both sides of the river. Uh, the, the impression that I had was that the bulk of the initial volley was aimed at my southern fighting position on my side of the river. Um, and it seemed like it was a pretty, a pretty significant burst of, of RPGs aimed specifically at that position, um, probably because it was the most exposed of any of, our, any of our positions on our side of the river. Um, once that initial volley hit on our side of the river, we basically took contact kind of 360 from the high ground. Um, the south seemed to continue to be the, the dominant place where we were getting fire from, but it, the western hilltops and western mountains were just as, uh, just as heavy, just as effective. And then the eastern side, we were getting it just as bad. From the north, we were getting some sporadic fire, but most of it was sort of from those, those three cardinal directions. Um, but any any direction that we went in, it was pretty, it was pretty significant. It was pretty high, 
high rate of fire and, and pretty accurate. Do you, know, do you know what they were armed with? You said RPGs, presumably they're AK-47s. Yeah. Um, anything else? Do they have any other machine guns? Yeah, the, they definitely had RPGs, PKMs, uh, AK-47s. Um, I don't believe at this point that they had any mortars set up. Um, I think this was still, I, I don't think they had prepared necessarily for this to become a long-term engagement. Um, you know, but so they had kind of your stock uh, set of equipment uh, that kind of any Taliban element would have. Um, they didn't really have any heavy weapons yet. That stuff showed up later. Um, but yeah, PKMs, RPGs, AK-47s, uh, that sort of thing. So this initial counterattack, um, you said started sometime in the afternoon. Um, was there kind of a definitive endpoint where they broke contact and and um, at least for the night? Yeah, the nightfall was really when stuff fully died down. Um, you know, we were we were in pretty heavy contact for hour and a half, two hours about. Um, and then we were able to get aviation to come through. We had A-10s come through um, and then the Apaches came on station. And that was kind of the end of it. And that was right around dusk um, that that happened. And that was really when they, you know, it, when aviation comes on, that's basically the end of the, the end of the firefight in most cases, um, at least where I was in Afghanistan. So aviation shows up, it's starting to get dark. That was sort of their, their retrograde signal as far as we could tell. Are you at this point, um, the, the birds come on station, they break contact and as it's getting dark, are you thinking, um, you're still going to be out of here in 96 hours. Are you are you expecting to get hit again in the morning? Yeah, I mean, we we basically at that point were. I don't know if we decided that we were going to be there longer than 96 hours, but we were we were ready to get in a fight again in the morning. And did um, that happen? Yep. So uh, over the next couple of days, you know, my my platoon was in contact, you know, on and off throughout the day, all day um, for the next four or five days, um, you know, firefights ranging from just some sporadic harassing fire to two, three, four hour firefights, depending on, um, you know, how much the enemy really wanted to really want to make a big push. So at this point, then this starts happening for, you know, a number of successive days. Now the 96 hour kind of timeline starts to probably look like it's going out the window. Um, you ultimately ended up staying there how long? Uh, so my platoon was there for about 10 days. Um, our battalion ended up staying there until uh, mid-September. So we were there from, from mid-July till mid-September. Um, and what the battalion would do is we would rotate platoons through Barjmatal. Um, we actually ended up sending up one of the big three, so the battalion commander, the battalion S3, the battalion XO had to be there at all times um, because we ended up flowing in about a company plus was sort of what the stock package became uh, up in Barsmith Hall throughout the, the course of the battalion's time there. Um, and you know, you'd have a platoon that was, was doing patrols and you have patrol, a platoon that was uh, like the force pro platoon that was building uh, fortifications and fixing up fighting positions and you had security platoons and 
uh, it became a whole, up, like a battalion level operation. Suddenly this starts looking a lot more like you're operating out of uh, an outpost, a cop someplace where you've got the sort of force rotations like that. And um, was there a sense though, you know, if you're, if you're at a cop, there is sort of a sense of permanence about it. Was there a sense that uh, this could become a permanent mission or was there, did you get the sense that people were always still kind of looking for that opportunity where, okay, we can declare it secure, we can hand off responsibilities to the Afghans and we can exfil and get out of here? Yeah, I mean, the the way that, that I viewed it, again, we didn't go back up there after the first 10 days. So it was sort of secondhand from from the other platoon leaders who, who ended up going up there later. The intent was always to hand it over. The intent was not to stay there. Um, and the reality of it was part of the reason why guys had to leave in September, why we had to pull out then, uh, was because there was no way to, to supply by helicopter in the winter. Um, you just physically couldn't get helicopters in there in the winter. Um, that said, I think the, the characterization as a cop is maybe a little bit, is, is a little bit of a misnomer calling it a cop feeling. It was more, it was more of a siege feeling is, is the impression that I got talking from, at least from my experience and then talking to guys who were up there for the, the later time. Um, we were lucky enough that the enemy would shoot at helicopters. The enemy did stuff to interdict resupply uh, and then new, new troops coming in and rotating in. Um, but other than that, once you were physically in the village, we couldn't, basically couldn't break out of the village. Um, you know, our battalion would send guys out to patrol, but it was, you know, more than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. Um, you were definitely getting in a near ambush. You were definitely getting in some kind of contact. Um, and given the nature of the ground, 100 meters outside the village was, you know, not, it was negligible. Like there, you, you could only do that in two or three places and everywhere else the mountains were sort of right up on top of you so you couldn't even get out that far. Um, and it became a sort of a cat and mouse game, especially as the, as the siege, for lack of a better term, wore on where the enemy would engage, would make a deliberate effort to seize a piece of ground or they would conduct a deliberate attack uh, one day. And then it would be two days of harassing fire or uh, sniper fire or something to kind of as an economy of force effort. And then they do another deliberate attack. And then it would be two days and that kind of became the cycle. Um, and they were able to take, take ground from us. I mean, we seeded some of the ground on the west side of the river over time. In the um, village itself. In, in the village itself. So they're, at this point, they're in houses, I mean, in distances of less than 100 meters. Yep, yep, e yeah, easily. Meters, right? So it was, their infill back into the village was partially due to, to some of that fighting, um, but was also partially due to what, what you had asked about before, which was we were, the battalion was trying to get people back into the village. Like the goal was to hand it back to the Afghan people um, and after a time, even within the 10 days that we were there, there was a push to get people back into their houses. Where were they? Um, most of them had fled to villages north and south, um, knowing that something was coming, that we were going to come and try and retake the village. It was probably going to get ugly. Um, but they slowly kind of filtered back in after those first, after that first week or so. Um, which is presumably a, 
measures success on one level right. because that's the objective, but also adds another layer of complexity yep. because now you've got civilians on this battlefield too that right. uh, you've got to take into consideration. So, so, so on a day-to-day -day basis, there's contact hmm. every day. Um, did you get the sense that, all right, you're in a firefight, um, that you're doing some damage that you're, you know, that if this is a battle of attrition, that their, that their manpower resources are starting to dwindle at any point? Um, not, not really. Um, you know, we were, we were definitely killing lots of them. Um, but you're also very close to the Pakistani border. We are very close to the Pakistani border. Um, but the, the impression that I got, especially not having, not having been to Nuristan, was that it almost didn't matter. Um, I was I was very impressed by the Nuristanians that I encountered and and conceivably that we were fighting against, uh, especially in in Barge Mittal because they didn't seem to care. Um, in that first week week and a half, you know, every day we are you know you're we're killing a bunch of people um, to the point where um, I was not back up there at this point. Um, but I believe, if I remember correctly, our battalion commander actually had some kind of armistice so that they could go like police up all their dead on the side of the mountain, oh. kind of thing. Um, so, it, but we never got the impression that like they were running out of steam. Um, my understanding is that that did happen about two and a half, kind of three weeks into the Battle of Barjmatal. Um, and the enemy kind of went to an economy of force effort. They brought in uh, some really good sharpshooters, some guys that could actually shoot. Um, and they started, you know, plunking guys in the thigh or plunking guys in the in the backside. And then guys would run out and they'd plunk those two guys. And um, and that kept up for a little while until they could kind of bring back enough force to deliberately attack again. Um, but for us, for, for my time up there, no, it, it didn't seem like anything we were doing was lessening the amount of fighting that we were getting into oh. every day. So when you fast forward then to September, they start to execute these plans to, to get Americans out of there. Um, was the sense that, okay, the Afghans can take care of it now? Or, or, and, and did that sense match up with reality? What happened to Barjimatawa after? after your battalion left? Yeah, so, so we, hand, we handed off the Afghans kind of throughout the course of our time there. We were you know, bringing in Afghan army. They were trying to train. Um, I, I think they were still called Afghan National Police, but they were sort of like what we would now call Afghan local police. They were sort of a militia that we, that we were working on. Of, of locals? Of, of more or less locals. Okay. I don't know how, I don't know if they were entirely local, um, but a big chunk of them were meant to be locals so that they would have some kind of police force and some kind of Afghan army contingent there to secure the place. Uh, I think when we left in September, there was a feeling that the, the Afghans at least theoretically had enough stuff there, enough people, enough ammunition, enough of everything, uh, that they could hold their own at least until the spring. Um, and that us leaving was not going to be basically just handing it back over to the Taliban. Um, and my understanding is that, that that is true, that the Afghans were kind of able to hold out until about next, the next June, so June of 2010. Um, and I think roughly the same thing happened, where they were overrun again. Um, and the guys who 
replaced us, I believe it was 101st, ended up having to go up and do a similar sort of thing to what we did uh, up in Barge Matol in 2010. Um, but when we left, I think, I don't think we had a choice whether or not the Afghans were ready. Um, but I think there was a, a, a general consensus that they could make it through the winter and that by spring we could get people back up there if we needed to, um, to help them out. So that's, so July, it gets overrun. Uh, you guys get the mission to get out there for 96 hours and it's September before the Americans are, are out of there, which yep. I think is a pretty, um, a pretty good example of just the challenge of planning and executing plans in war of that nature, in terrain of that nature, and with the enemy of that nature. Uh, Jake, thanks very much. This has been this has been really interesting. All right. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, thanks for listening to The Spear. Remember, you can find and subscribe to The Spear on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the stories we feature, we'd love it if you'd take just a moment and give us a rating or leave a review. Thanks again for listening.